good to see everyone here this evening that you've set aside the 5.30 hour on Sunday afternoon as a time to continue worshiping the God of heaven, to thank Him for all He's done for us, to in fact be privileged to enter into His presence in the way that we are tonight. Worship services are such an enthralling time, aren't they? They're a time that I realize the world looks upon as rather mundane, and perhaps many, as you and I would appreciate, would be quick to choose something else to do, especially on a beautiful weather-wise Sunday afternoon. And yet you and I realize there's nothing more important, nothing more significant, nothing more needful for our intense interest in this. Their elders certainly would be thankful that each of us are here, and tonight we're going to come to installment three in our history of the Bible. I hope that you do have your Bible handy so that we can refer to a few things along the way. It'll be a little bit along in the sermon before we actually get to a few of those verses, but when we do... I believe it'll be meaningful for you just to be able to hold that Bible. I hope that we'll treasure it, appreciate it, look upon it for the richness that it has within it. This opening slide is one that'll set us on our course for the lesson this afternoon. That Bible, as you and I have tried to highlight through the two previous lessons, is remarkably great in its treasurehood. It really is a great treasure. Where would you and I be without it? Think about how you would determine morality, how you would determine what's wrong or right. How would you know what to do to get to heaven? How would you even know there is a heaven? How would you know how to avoid hell? Aren't you thankful for the Bible? What about the picturesque way it allows us to appreciate the day of judgment so that we can be ready for it and not show up unprepared and not arrive in such a way that we'll be regretful? You see, it's only by way of that Bible... Men have written many things across the centuries, various and sundry documents, articles, and otherwise, and yet none of them compare to the Word of God. We have already studied a number of things. We have learned in Lesson 1 about the revelation of truth, how that it's the Bible that gives us the great appreciation about Jesus. Isn't it true that we have in the Bible the record of the creation, and yea, how things came about? We learn about the church. Isn't it true that we would know nothing, really, about the church were it not for the Bible? We might even appreciate a number of things by virtue of the word of men, but yet as far as the integrity, the structure, the nature, the destiny, the character of the church, we'd know nothing of that. We also, of course, along that appreciation, learn somewhat about the various ways through history that God preserved the Bible. Tonight we'll continue that particular aspect, and we'll do that by looking on the one hand at some translations, and on the other hand at the nature of the claims that the Bible makes in light of that. As we come to that appreciation, let's first cast a bit of a spotlight, simply because of its historical character on the non-English translations of the Bible. Now I realize you and I are so thankful for the English translations, but I believe it would do us well to at least highlight one aspect of the history because they had a prominent impact upon the English translation. I have certainly been a bit selective in listing these, but I wanted you to think about this. Are you aware of the fact that in the original character of the Word of God, it took one scribe one year to make one copy of the Bible? Let's say that again. 
Back before printing presses were invented and developed, it took one man one year to make one copy of the Bible. It's no wonder then copies of it were so treasured. You can imagine how that in a community, a particular congregation, if you please, or a group of people may have enjoyed a central copy, but nobody at least typically had one. Maybe those that were particularly rich were able to afford one, but otherwise they were far too expensive. Your only exposure to it would have been when you assembled with the brethren and heard somebody read out of it. Aren't you thankful for that Bible? You and I can listen to it with such freedom. We can read it. We can pull it up on our phone and have somebody read it to us. We can even go to websites in which freely available to you and me is some person reading the Word of God. Truly, we should be thankful for that freedom, that opportunity. But those translations bring me to note the next idea. We mentioned this in passing in one of the earlier lessons, but this is the proper time to cast a bit stronger spotlight. Recall with me that the Old Testament was written primarily originally in Hebrew. However, the time came when the people of God were taken into captivity. Assyria, Babylon, and other places. And over the time, the Israelites came to speak other languages. Aren't we told in Nehemiah that the people of that day, though Israelite they were, they spoke the language of Ashdod. They simply weren't conversant in Hebrew anymore. You and I maybe aren't too surprised then when the time came that some individuals recognized how needful it might be for that Hebrew text to be translated into Greek. Alexander the Great by that time had already conquered much of the known world and Greek was the language known far and wide and how useful it would be, they perceive, if the Word of God could be placed in Greek. And so it was a Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. was that translation that took that Hebrew and translated it into Greek. And that particular matter occurred about 270 B.C., Around 270 years before Jesus was born, the Old Testament had been translated into Greek. The reason that occupies such a pivotal and vital role for you and me is this. Please notice, those who took the liberty of setting forth the idea behind making that translation intended to make sure it was accurate. Seventy-two translators were selected. They were given the charge to work with care, to work with meticulousness. And as they did so, they identified and came together and formed that translation. Please note this with me. While Jesus walked upon earth, and while the other inspired individuals of the New Testament, they more often quoted from the Septuagint than any other. Among other things, that highlights the fact Jesus gave His stamp of approval to translations. You and I, if we could, we might learn Hebrew or Greek, but you and I can appreciate that an English translation is just fine. Our Savior, again, used a Greek one for the Old Testament. In addition to that, might I ask you to notice that as the New Testament writers referred quite often to that Septuagint, it's true that as they quoted from it, that explains on many occasions why you and I appreciate that the wording is not exactly the same as sometimes appears in the Old Testament original Hebrew. Perhaps you and I can keep that in mind as we study the quotations of the New Testament, for often it has a tremendous bearing 
upon understanding why it's written the way it is. But to say that translation is a vital one, why don't we note the next one? Several hundred years after this, by this time, would you note with me in 390 A.D.? So now Jesus the Christ has already come and He's already died. In fact, well over 350 years previous. But another issue has come before the human family. The Roman Empire rules the world and they speak Latin. Latin is their language. At this point, might we notice how vital it no doubt would be if someone would translate those precious scriptures from the original languages into Latin. May I call to your attention the so-called Latin Vulgate. It again had a stirring place in the history of the translations of the Bible because translated into Latin. Might I invite you to note the one who did this was St. Jerome and often his name is still spoken of rather highly in light of those translations. It's still rather notable to appreciate that the Catholic Church still uses the Vulgate for many of the things declared in the so-called Catholic Mass of our present day. All of these centuries later, they still regard the Vulgate exceedingly high and exceedingly to be respected. To say that about the Vulgate perhaps leads me to say this. Often, later, you and I will appreciate the Vulgate was used to assist in some other translations. And so I want to come to the next one and highlight the following. I thought it timely to bring to our attention, you and I just noted some pieces and matters about the Catholic Church. But would you keep this in mind with me? Over the centuries, from the time our blessed Savior established the congregations of truth, the Church of Christ, isn't it true in the New Testament? There was exact prophecies that there would be a departure from the faith. Individuals would move away from the truth of the gospel. In 1 Timothy 4, verse number 1, the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter days some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Here was an inspired writer who foretold very carefully and critically that there will come a time when there will be a notable departure from the faith. And in so doing, here are some of the things they'll teach, forbidding to marry. Catholic Church has done that now for centuries. Not only that, they also would elevate rather highly and forbid to eat certain things. Catholic Church has done that too. May I say that among other things, you'll notice the Catholic Church has had its errors and it has often defended things that the Bible does not teach. I say that to list a few of them. Over the course of centuries, note some of the things that the Catholic Church adopted and began to teach as if it was in the Word of God, although it isn't. Doctrine such as purgatory, that there's this waiting place after the time of death and those who die lost still will have an opportunity to be saved. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. Or what about the doctrine of penance? How that a person can arrive at a matter of forgiveness and obtain proper measures in ways unidentified in the New Testament. Or what about the issue of holy water? This particular substance, in this case water, that has within it the capability of doing what nothing in the New Testament identifies. Or yet, what about indulgences? 
how that I can use a dollar bill and buy forgiveness somehow. Where's that ever taught? You and I know the New Testament's as silent as the tomb on something like that. And it is that very matter that ultimately led to, of course, some who realized, where is that in the Word of God? Finally, could I ask you to consider the doctrine of papal infallibility? This doctrine known as ex cathedra, such that a pope is speaking fully and absolutely the inspired nature of the Word of God while he is, of course, in that position. Now, you and I know again, no human has been given that opportunity this side of those inspired writers of the New Testament. And yet, the Catholic Church over centuries came to teach those things and others. Is it surprising or shocking to us? One of the reasons why they were able to develop that sense is because humankind didn't have the Bible. Remember, that was before the printing press was invented, and the Catholic Church didn't want people to have the Bible. For they knew if people had it, they'd know that kind of stuff is not in it anywhere. The Catholic Church, history records, did not want people to have access to the Word of God. That seems so foreign to you and me. That seems so strange to you and me. And yet, that was what prompted many things throughout the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. And finally, that darkness was shattered when that book that you're holding in your lap came to be appreciated, widely distributed and read, preached with thunderous power and character. Why don't we continue that consideration like this? For let's look at just a few of the individuals. Could I ask you to consider John Wycliffe for just a moment? Notice the time period that he lived. A long time ago from your perspective and mine. 1324 to 1384. And yet, here was a gentleman who himself, some of these notes are to be appreciated. He is widely regarded as the morning star of the Reformation. Why might that acclamation, why might that description be so fitting? First, he was a very learned man, a teacher at Oxford University in Great Britain. But not only that, he was a powerful preacher because his knowledge of the Scriptures, and he wasn't afraid to preach it, and he wasn't afraid to encourage it both publicly and privately. Notice he wasn't one to bend to the nature of what Catholicism taught, and he wasn't one to bend to the character of what others may have wanted to hear. He was bold and controversial, and he, with his knowledge of the ancient texts, he produced the Wycliffe Bible, an English copy of the New Testament. And it was his desire to make it available. It was his desire so that individuals would have access to it, that it wouldn't be simply hidden and cloistered in a building. And you realize what typically the Catholic Church would do. There were copies of the Scriptures, of course, often in Latin, and many people, of course, couldn't read them, but they kept them chained to the pulpit. And so you couldn't take them away from the building even if you wanted to. You see how sweetly blessed you and I are to have a copy, perhaps many copies of the Word of God. And not only that, look at what else might be said about Wycliffe. With his intent and his desire to make copies of the Word of God available, the Catholic Church didn't like it even a little bit. 
They condemned Wycliffe for those efforts and for attempting to bring that about. And so strong was their condemnation that even after he died, and remember Wycliffe died in 1384, in the year 1415 the Catholic Council of Constance made an absolute decree of condemnation with regard to what Wycliffe had done, that they had his bones dug up and burned. That's how much they hated his attempt to make available the Word of God. Doesn't that just strike within you a sense of great respect for what the man attempted to do? As you and I come to the bottom of that slide, though, aren't we at this point blessed to know there was something invented at roughly this time in the year 1455-1456, Johann Gutenberg invented what you and I would come to call the printing press. No longer did it take a scribe one year to make a copy of the Bible. Now they could be churned out in a matter of hours on a printing press. Some of the first things to be printed was a copy of the Bible, the Word of God. As we turn to the next slide, in fact, some of the initial matters relating to the usage of this printing press were these. Could I call to your attention William Tyndale? Following the work of Wycliffe that we just noted a moment ago, here came along another gentleman who had a strong and almost insatiable desire to make available to the common man, to common people, the English version of the Bible. Look at some of these details. Tyndale, again, was a brilliant scholar. He had great knowledge of the original languages, both in Hebrew and Greek, and he worked both in Oxford and Cambridge. In addition to that, I've actually quoted for you a goal that he stated in public at one time early in his life. With his exquisite knowledge of these languages and conversation with a rather notable religious priest on one occasion, he said, If God will spare my life, it won't be many years before I'll make a boy that drives the plow know more about the Scriptures than you do. And his life's task, his life's goal was that. If you read much in the history of Tyndale, you'll find that it was an arduous journey to bring it about. He was persecuted and often very strongly and aggressively opposed on many hands. But these comments perhaps are worthy. Remember that he himself was of England, but yet nobody in England offered any support to his desire. Those who were high-ranking officials in religion offered no encouragement or support to his desire to make these copies of the Bible. And therefore, he was forced to flee England. He came to Germany. He did find at least some encouragement and support there. But ultimately, before he passed from this life, he completed several versions of of the English copy of the Bible. His life's goal was brought to fruition. That wish, that desire, that motivation that so moved him was brought to reality. In fact, you'll notice one other thing, though, that I can't help but notice. Earlier again, I stated that Wycliffe was so often oppressed by the Catholic Church that ultimately they dug up his bones and condemned Notice what happened to Tyndale. Again, he had fled England. And as he had come to Germany, in fact, he worked much in Europe. But one thing should be noted. The Catholic Church had tremendous power in the European continent. But there was one country 
that was a safe haven from the forces of Catholicism. It was the country that you and I would recognize, of course, related to Belgium. And so in Antwerp is where Tyndale spent a great deal of time because he was protected there from the onslaughts of Catholicism. But the following thing historically is recorded. Someone made an arrangement with Tyndale. That is to say, they in fact made an agreement with him and to make the agreement he had to leave Antwerp. He went to meet this person, but he was outside the city. That meant he was in the realm of being called and the Catholics kidnapped him. It was a setup, you see. They kidnapped him and you'll notice what they did to him. The time came, they strangled him and furthermore... They burned him at the stake. And what had he done? He'd made copies of the Word of God and made it available in English and made it available to common people at a far lower expense. Kind of fascinating to think about the journey that the English versions of the Word of God have, of course, brought to you and me. As you and I come to the bottom of the slide... Time would fail us tonight to speak about some of the other things that might be listed. If you have an interest to do so, I might direct you to study about the Coverdale Bible. It too has a rather interesting history. Miles Coverdale is the gentleman's name, and he, another scholar, prompted the bringing about of this one. There's a so-called Great Bible, the Bishop's Bible, the Geneva Bible, all of them English translations of the Bible. But as you think about all of them, as history brought them before us, they each have come and gone. Of course, history brought about some additional matters, and our next slide will bring us to those thoughts too. Because as you and I come to this slide, I would be remiss, I think, not to bring appreciation to the King James Version of the Bible. Many of us have treasured it. We grew up with it. We've heard it preached from pulpits and read with such sweetness. Its cadence is catching and its lessons are timeless. What might we say about the King James Version of the Bible, the one that again you and I have so often reflected upon and used with such encouragement? Well, these thoughts, it seems to me, are in order. You and I now come to the year 1603. The king of Scotland became the king of Great Britain and he took the name James I. As he did so, there was an immediate problem brought to his attention. The problem was this. By that point, these other versions in English of the Bible had come to exist and they didn't all read alike. What's more, there was a distinction made. In the churches, in the pulpits, there was one of them that was primarily used and common people were reading out of another one. And when James polled the individuals near the beginning of his reign, he said, what problem could we address most notably? And top of their list was this. We need a version of the Bible that's commonly accepted both by those who are the scholars of the day and by the common people alike. One that we all can read and love and appreciate and obey. James took that lesson to heart and he did the following. He commissioned the finest and ripest scholars of the day, those who were equipped both in Hebrew and Greek, those who were skilled and expert in those languages, and he commissioned them to make exactly what was required, the finest English version of the Bible to that point the world had ever known. 
54 men were commissioned in task with this task. May I invite you to notice they were divided into six companies. They were charged with the following. As each one would set about completing a particular translation of a section of the Word of God, that one was then sent for the others to review. And as they cross-checked and reviewed it, when the task was completed in 1610, and ultimately brought before James to be ratified, and so it was in 1611 that the finest English translation at that time at least that the world had ever known was brought to reality. And aren't you impressed that it has lived now for all these centuries? And it is still so highly regarded and read. I confess I still enjoy using that translation myself. And it was completed in 1610 and brought before us in 1611. Now certainly as you and I realize, that particular attribute and that finery is such an impressive thing to notice. What other document was written about that time that would still be a lively document? Would any medical document written then be likely to be studied today? Would any scientific document written then be likely to be studied today? What about a sociological document? And you and I know the answer to all those is no. But that Word of God, challenged and set forth and completed with that motivation, that King James Version of the Word of God, Perhaps one final thing on that slide then would be this. With that King James Version completed, soon it overwhelmed all those others and it did fulfill that which the people requested and that which James desired. It did become the translation accepted far and wide by not only scholars alike but those that were the common people. I suppose that provides at least some understanding of why that translation has been such a timeless thing. But it does perhaps lead us also to note this. From time to time, you and I have frequently noted that other translations like the American Standard is worthy of our comment. It too is a fine English translation. A few comments about that one beginning at the bottom of that slide. As you reach the year 1870 or so, so notice you've now come well over 250 years since the time the King James Version was actually released. And the English language had changed rather notably by then. There were some words that had become obsolete. There were some things that seemingly did not read as nicely because people didn't understand the vernacular that they had in 1611. And therefore, a commission was formed to make a new English translation, one that would be as highly regarded for the language of that day, or even more so compared to the 1611 version earlier. There perhaps is one other thing to be also noted. Between the time of 1611 and the time of 1870, many ancient manuscripts and documents was unearthed and discovered, and hence... Those translators of 1870 had access to a lot more original documents. And therefore, when you and I come to this translation, there was again a notable grouping of the ripest scholars of the day. They were commissioned with making the most highly regarded and the truest translation according to the original texts that was possible to be made. There were two groups. There was a set of European scholars and a set of, Euro a set of American ones as well. As they worked, ultimately they completed in 1881 the New Testament. 
four years later, the Old Testament. Now, perhaps you don't know a whole lot about that. It's often called the revi simply the Revised Version, but you and I know something else about it far more keenly. It has to do with the bottom statement on that slide. When the 1881 and 1885 versions were released, the American scholars had an issue with a few things in relation to how matters were stated for European-speaking English people. And therefore, they agreed to hold off due to the copyright for 14 years. They agreed to hold off and print their own in 1901. And so they did. And to this day, it's called the American Standard Version, the ASV. And it is still regarded as the most literally true translation of the Bible that's ever existed. Maybe you have access to it. Again, frequently we refer to it in our Bible studies when we want to go back and see how a rendering in English of the ripest literal translation available, the ASV of 1901. May I say, if you have a copy, treasure it very highly. We don't know if the world will ever produce another literal translation like that one. But as we close that slide, a few more comments tonight about these English versions of the Bible. Because it seems to me it's a rather vital thing to pause and comment somewhat carefully about the philosophy of translation. If you were challenged to give input to the making of a translation of the Bible, what, what advice would you give? What counsel would you offer? May I say that there's a rather wide spectrum. On some occasions, you'll notice that there are some philosophies of translation that operate like this. They operate on a thought-for-thought -thought basis. In other words, the translator reads the original Hebrew or Greek, interprets what it says, then puts it into English. And so it's the, it's the interpreter, the translator who is deciding what the text says and then putting that into English or into other languages that might be used. I think we each can see a, perhaps a strong danger in that. So I'm depending on that translator to understand what that text says. I believe, wouldn't it be better to appreciate a word-for-word -word translation? That is, someone who knows the original language and takes that word and puts it into English and doesn't try to interpret it. That spectrum is to be noted because that philosophy is critical. I might encourage you when you go to buy a, an English or perhaps another particular translation, open up the front and read the foreword and look at what the translation philosophy of the translators is. If it's thought for thought, be careful, for they're claiming to do the translation for you. If it's a word for word, all they're doing is taking the original word, whatever it would have been, put that same word in English or other language, and let you do the translating. Let you do the interpreting, I should say. As you and I look at that, at that you might notice the King James is a nice word for word, and so is the ASV, and so is the ESV, the English Standard Version. But other things like the NIV are much more thought for thought. The RSV, again, much more thought for thought. Be careful. We all must be sure we handle the Word of God correctly. Notice one final thought tonight, and the lesson will be yours. As we continue our journey through the translations and this history of the Bible, 
it seemed to me rather useful to emphasize the character of what these translators are handling. They're not handling merely the word of men. They aren't handling merely the thoughts of men. They have been handling the word of God. And shouldn't we then be very interested to know that a man who was translating the Bible truly recognized he was handling the word of God. In Psalm 119, look at just a sampling of some of the verses out of that longest chapter in the Old Testament. Yea, even the longest chapter in the Bible. Blessed are they that keep His testimonies and that seek Him with a whole heart, verse number 2. Or what about verse 11? Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Notice what the Word of God does. By ingesting it into life, it can keep us from sin. In verses 15 and 16, I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself also in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. How touching is that thought. In verse number 24, Thy word are my counselors. Where do you and I go for counsel and advice? The psalmist said he went to the word of God. Later we notice in Psalm 80, verse number 89 of that chapter, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. So where is it founded? In heaven. It's not here on earth anywhere. It's far stronger, far sounder, far more permanent than that. In verse number 97, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 140, Thy word is very pure. Therefore thy servant loveth it. Verse 128, Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. But you notice God's ways are right. And the psalmist hated that which was false. What about you and me? Verse number 129, The entrance of thy word giveth light, and it giveth understanding unto the simple. Verses 129 and 130. Later in verse number 142, Thy law is the truth. Verse 160, We appreciate that the sum of the word of God is true. Verse 172, I will sing of thy precepts, for all thy commandments are righteousness. One could go on and on out of that longest chapter, but maybe we have at least considered enough to remind us how privileged, how honored, how blessed we have been to have an English version of the Word of God. Aren't you thankful that you can study it and read it in English without having to master Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek? And yet to learn those languages is fine, but aren't you also honored that the God of heaven saw fit to permit His Word to be translated into English. And you and I can freely study it and read it, learn it and obey it, and thus live this life confident we can end our sojourn here, faithful and true and ready to go home to be with God forever. Let's close our lesson then with a summary page. In our study then throughout this series to this point, the history of the Bible. We've learned about the canon of Scripture, the standard that the Word of God is. We highlighted along the way the appreciation of its inspiration by way of the way God made it available. We also commented about its significance, the translations that are before us, and of course, you and I then have no excuse 
for bypassing the things that Jesus said, as well as Job in Job 23, 12. Job declared that he wanted, esteemed, and longed for the Word of God even more so than physical food. And Jesus said, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. I hope you always come hungry to worship services. And I hope that pulpit, at least here at Pippin, will always provide a steady diet of the true Word of God, never compromising it for anything else, because nothing else will get us to heaven. Tonight, if there's anybody in the audience, and upon examination of your life, all isn't well. A song of encouragement has been selected, and during that time, we're going to stand and sing. And while we do, if you feel a desire to make things right, don't delay, don't procrastinate. Today's the day of salvation. Can't you just see in your mind's eye Jesus hanging on a cross in such agony and anguish? He did that for you and for me. If you'd like to, in fact, become a member of the body of Christ this evening, having never done that, let tonight be the night. Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. And if you have taken care of that initial set of steps, and perhaps were faithful for a while, but maybe the Bible has lost its luster. Maybe you haven't had a keen interest in it. You realize that's eternally dangerous. Why not come back to your first love and let the Word of God flame within you again, not just burning with cold embers, but to burn brightly and to lead you along that primrose pathway to eternal life. If we could help you by praying to God for forgiveness of sins you've committed publicly, we'd be delighted to do that and we'd be honored. We'd like you to ask us to do that and we'd certainly be happy to do it. Tonight, if there'd be anybody in the audience in that condition, why not come at the very moment as we stand together and sing?